my name is Garrett. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm here to celebrate. Um, uh, about two and a half years ago, we started our 2020 Vision Financial Challenge. Um, above our normal giving, we're raising an additional $1.3 million in three years for ministry in our church, uh, in our community, and around the world. And so I think I'll do it the opposite of what I did last time, Everett. First, I want to tell you about um, our next big project. So um, we've been in this building now for about 14 years. And our K-4 through room, we never did a full remodel of it when we moved in. We painted some murals. We found some used uh, carpet squares from an office space that were in good shape. And they've got it looking good. But we're getting ready to transform it. And that'll be our, our last uh, space that's in its original condition. And uh, we're going to get a kindergarten through fourth grade room that looks like these pictures that you're seeing behind us. So that is going to be awesome. That's going to be an awesome space. So what's going to happen with these drawings? And there's some architectural blueprints that back those up. So in a week or two, we're going to have a general contractor come in and give us our first bid. So let's all be praying we get a good one and uh, then get ready for some construction next year. Amen? Amen. We're super excited. And so that I also want to let you know um, that last week we also crossed the $1 million mark. So yeah. So we are super excited for what God has done, for all of your generosity. I know, like me, I couldn't even fulfill the pledge that I made if it weren't for the way God has provided. Because on paper, it often doesn't look like that's going to happen. But God always, always comes through. So let us give him thanks. After this service, um, maybe you already partook, but after this service, there's going to be a reception to celebrate this uh, milestone in our financial challenge. So you have a cupcake, have some sparkling grape juice, have two cupcakes. And so that'll be after church, we can linger and celebrate what celebrate what God has done. Um, there's one other thing I wanted to say about that. Yes, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have some progress letters come out so that everyone can see where you are in case you're sitting there right now like, uh, yeah, where am I on that? So we'll have those come out. We have a, just under five months left in this financial challenge. So, um, but we're so excited about what God has done and continues to do. Taylor Qualls is going to come give us the word this morning. Um, Taylor is uh, our director of Young Adults Ministry. He's got a degree in Bible and counseling, so that's a nice, a nice one-two punch. You get a lot better illustrations with me than me where I have a degree in Bible and a degree in biology, so it's all snakes and body functions. So <laughs> counseling is a lot more present, pleasant to listen to. So uh, let's welcome Taylor. Hey, Ian. So, last week, I was up here talking, and, and we talked about what it means to declare Jesus as Lord. Um, I'm going to recap that really quick, uh, if you weren't here, and it's been a whole week, so it's probably good for the rest of us. To declare that Jesus is Lord is to move from one kingdom into another. Um, to move, to give up our allegiance to Democrats and Republicans, and even America, and to put our hope in the way of Jesus. To, to, to put our hope not in military might or social welfare systems, but in the way of forgiveness. We lay down our American rights as we move into this new kingdom. And instead, we take up our cross 
and we die to ourselves in order to find real life. We, we take on the spirit of Christ who did not find equality with God as something to be taken advantage of, but humbled himself to the point of death on a cross where he, he forgave those who were murdering him while they were still in the act. Um, he washed his disciples' feet. That is what will bring peace on earth. That is what we declare. That that is the way that I choose. That is who I put my trust in, the person of Jesus and his way and his kingdom. So that's a lot. If you weren't here last week, there's a podcast. So what does that movement from one kingdom to another look like? What, what matters to this king? Um, what are his top priorities if we are to be his citizens in his kingdom? And to start, we're going to take a look at the Gospel of John, the words of Jesus. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. He then goes on to say, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We live out our commitments to King Jesus. We demonstrate that we are his disciples, that, that we belong to his kingdom when we love each other, when we wash each other's feet, when we lay down our lives, and honestly, sometimes harder when we lay down our convenience for each other. But it also doesn't end there. Here's Jesus in Luke's gospel. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. 
He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he gave two denarii, about two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Whether we like it or not, we don't get to choose where our love ends. When Jesus chose the Samaritan as the example of like, here's your neighbor, uh, he was saying something honestly pretty intense. Um, For a little bit of context, a couple, in the, a couple of years ago in the not-so-recent history when Jesus was telling this story, the Samaritan people had snuck into Jerusalem by night and strewn corpses all throughout the temple. Now, that already sounds disturbing and gross and wrong to us, but we don't even get the half of it because to ancient people, if something holy came into contact with something dead. It was defiled. Um, Meaning that they believed that God could no longer be present in or near or around that thing. So for Jerusalem, the place where God dwelt in his temple, for that temple to be defiled was an attempt to get God to abandon his people. And they thought, surely if God abandons his people, they'll die. I mean, this is like a terrorist act, unlike anything that we've ever seen or experienced or heard of. They're literally trying to get God to abandon his people so that all of them will die. And Jesus says, that guy, the terrorist, he's your neighbor. We don't get to decide where our love stops. And according to Jesus, eternal life is at stake here. And a quick aside while we're talking about eternal life. If you read the phrase inherit eternal life in the Bible and your mind immediately goes to get out of hell and into heaven, then you're really missing the point. And that's not your fault. I grew up being taught that way and that's where my mind often just like jumps to automatically. But the reality is that God is very, very interested and concerned with our life here and now. Um, Eternal life is not so much like a time as it is a quality of life. Uh, That's why Jesus and John offers us eternal life that never ends. Um, Who are we and what kind of people are we? Are we the kind of people who are inheriting real, meaningful, full, rich life? Or are we the kind of people who just go through the motions? Are we the kind of people who are living or dying? Are we allowing God to raise us from the dead right here and right now? And I do believe firmly that God is going to literally raise us from the dead someday. But that's always kind of at the back of biblical thought. There's the end of my tangent. So where are we? 
so far. We put our trust in, in and pledge our allegiance to King Jesus. And we leave a kingdom of death for a kingdom of real, full, meaningful, eternal life. The things that, distinct, the things that distinguish citizens of this kingdom are that they love each other and they love their enemies. There are no outsiders. No one gets a free pass at loving. Just to make this clear, here's Jesus and Matthew. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your father is perfect. This is how we are children of our father, that we love our enemies. That doesn't seem to me like some small sidebar, some tangential kind of thing. That's at the core of what it is to be the people of God. You see, we've been told that if we're going to be identified as Jesus' disciples, we love each other. If we're going to be identified as the children of God, we love our enemies. You could say that to be Christian is to engage in this love that is flowing out of God. I think you could say that to be human is to engage in this love that's flowing out of God. Because didn't our Lord call himself the son of man or the true human and show us the way into living out our humanity? If we want to be followers of Jesus, we have to love each other. If we want to be children of our father, we have to love our enemies. And now it's time for confession. I have a bit of an ulterior motive when I bring this up like right now when I do. You see, it's 2019. Next year is 2020. And that means we're coming up on an election again. And everyone got a little bit more tense. It's genuinely uncomfortable for me to stand up here and even mention that. Because last election was horrible. Whether you felt like you won or lost or whatever, it was terrible because we turned on each other. Our whole country turned on each other and lost the ability to talk like adults. And I have friends whose churches literally don't exist anymore because they couldn't give over, get over their political differences. There are people who used to call themselves a part of our family at Lakeland and they no longer count themselves among us because they just couldn't make it work. Guys, we have to do something different. We have to be better than petty squabbles online we have to do something other than just constantly debate each other and put each other down and belittle each other. Hear me. If we can't learn to love each other and our enemies because it's an election year, 
and there are people that we disagree with, then we have no right to call ourselves the people of God. It doesn't mean that God ceases to love us, but I'm also not over-speaking or using hyperbole. Hear Hear the Apostle John on this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit and he has seen and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love perfected in us, by this love is perfected in us, so we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot hope to love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We are supposed to be the kingdom, a preview of the kingdom that is already in the world and, and growing slowly to culmination. People are supposed to look at us as a church and be struck by how different we are. To the point that they see like this is the hope of the world. And then some guy gets a mic and a camera and gets the power to make us hate each other. And that's not okay. We can't let that happen and claim to belong to the kingdom of God. And we're all guilty of hate. None of us gets a free pass here, me included. How can you possibly claim to love someone on the other side of the world, but hate the person sitting right next to you? Here's C.S. Lewis from the Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional demon writing to his nephew, Wormwood, on how to do his job effectively. The great thing is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbors, whom he meets every day, and to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference, to people he does not know. The malice thus becomes wholly real, and the benevolence largely imaginary. Or what we just read in 
from the Apostle John. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Or I would also extend that to a person he's never seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Then there are those of us who hate Trump. And I'm not talking about disagreeing with his politics. I'm not talking about having your feelings about him. I'm talking about people who, those of us who spend our time and energy actively hating the man. Um, Whether that's online, whether that's in every conversation you get a chance, or whether that's just in your own heart. Here's Jesus from Matthew. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, you idiot, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. We're not the judge. Then there's those of us who would protect our own rights over the rights of those who are in need. Uh, Those of us who would try and inch our way to the top and ignore those on the outside. Here's James, the brother of Jesus. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Here's Jesus and Matthew. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. One more, here's Leviticus. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Then all the people shall say, Amen. And I can hear people saying, but these issues that are at stake are so important. Needy children at our border, the education of our own children, the protection of our nation, to which I say, absolutely. The question is not, are these things important or do they matter? The question is, how do we respond to them as the people of God? And for that, we've been given an example by our Lord. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, says the Apostle Paul. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to, glory, to the glory of God our Father. Our world is hurting and broken. We want things to be made right. We long for that. We're not callous people. We have opinions on that should ha- how that should happen. And we're going to disagree with each other and be passionate because we care. But ultimately, we've been given a model by our Lord of how we are to do that. So now that we're all sufficiently tense, I need everybody to take in a deep breath and release it. Get comfortable and close your eyes again. I did that last week. I'm doing it again. Take a minute. Wow, my neck popped again. It did that during first service too. Now imagine with me. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is ushered in. He's been ushered in by the people of Jerusalem as their conquering ruler, their Messiah who will throw off Roman rule and establish a Jewish empire, making the world right and whole. Sound familiar? Jesus has seen the hurt and pain of his people, the oppression of Rome. He knows the Jewish prophecies and the ways that most interpret them. The Jewish people are already behind him. He could end his people's oppression. One of his inner circle has already attempted to set him on this path by selling him out to the religious rulers, hoping this will spur Jesus to action. The path has been laid out. This could work. This could make a difference in the world. Or he could die. He could show the world that power works differently than they think. He could suffer, be beaten and mocked and abandoned. He could put his money where his mouth is with all of this enemy love and forgiveness talk. He could entrust his life and the fate of his people over to the hands of his father. He agonizes, he weeps until he bleeds. He hurts, he experiences doubt and confusion. Through all the pain, Jesus decides that his father is trustworthy. If this cup could pass from me, please do it. Not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. So he dies. He trusts that his father is good and is making things right, putting them back together. He didn't have to take matters into his own hands as everyone wants him to. His father is good and loving and worthy of trust. And God raises him from the dead. God validates everything that Jesus said in that moment. Here is true power. God on a cross laying down his life forgiving those who called him enemy even as they kill him. And the world changes in a moment. Death is defeated. Sin is overcome and overwhelmed in the love of God. In this act of trust, Jesus paves the way into life. 
He is the firstborn of the resurrection, our oldest brother who has been made both Lord and Christ, as Paul says it. His followers will go on to love the lowly, to reform the world in the love of God. Hospitals, orphanages, reformed prisons, a new value on human life, the end of slavery, and so much more. All out of one act of trust. Jesus literally remade the world that day. The day when he chose to trust his fate and the fate of the world into the hands of his father rather than seizing power for himself. You can open your eyes. But plenty of people do much hate in the name of Jesus. Violence is advocated for. Holocaust, Inquisition, Crusades, genocides, all of these things have been done in the name of Jesus. And we can hate in the name of Jesus because we think that we're right. Because we think that we have it so together that God is on our side. And he'll have nothing to do with it. How can he? He demonstrated through his words and through his actions that his way is that of love and humble trust in the Father. Trust that says we are not the saviors of the universe. That's not our burden to bear. That weight belongs on God's shoulders. We think we know what justice looks, justice looks like. We think we know what the world needs. We think we have it all together. And then we see Jesus in the garden, weeping, saying, not my will, but yours. But could we have that kind of trust? If we had that kind of trust, we wouldn't need to be afraid. We wouldn't need to control everything. We could love. And to be clear, love does not mean an action. Love does not mean we sit around being sentimental. But the actions of love and trust are radically different than the actions of hate. When we act out of love, we're compelled to understand people that we disagree with rather than belittling them. When we act out of trust, the ends never justify the means because we're not the saviors of the world. Our job is to walk in faithfulness and trust that our God is putting the world back together. I hope this is all starting to come together and make sense. We confess that Jesus is Lord. We move from a kingdom of death into a kingdom of real, meaningful, eternal life. Here, we partner with God in putting, back the, together, putting the world back together, but not as people who are afraid but as people with a quiet confidence that God is making all things new. And as the people of a God who is making all things new, we're called to love. We're called to love the people that we like. We're called to love the people we dislike. We're called to love the people that are like us and the people that are different from us. We're called to love the people who call us enemy and they're called to love the people who've hurt us. We're especially called to love those who are on the outside and those who are lowly.
whatever else we do, this is our posture. That God is making all things new. And we are called to love this world as he does. And because of that love that he has for us, we can love in ways that we once thought were impossible. Because he's loving us back to life. And let's join in with that mission that God has and allow him to love us all back to life through each other. Through God's love flowing through us. And we can love the people that we disagree with all the more because God loves us even though we have a lot of weird opinions. How much better does that sound than fighting online? How much more life-giving is that than debating and belittling to participate with God and loving the world back to life? Can we change this, this time around, this, this election here, can we be a people who are before all else and in all else about loving each other? And because of that deep love of God in us, trusting God to put the world back together and make things right.